Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis, and today we will be celebrating the life and work of a legendary actress and director, Ida Lupino. I said at the top today we will be looking at the life and work of Ida Lupino an actress and director and screenwriter that I personally I adore and um, a woman who was a pioneer for uh, who kind of paved the way for female directors in Hollywood we're gonna get into all that in a little bit also a woman with uh, a lot of firsts and a lot of important distinctions uh, accrued over the course of her career fantastic actress she was in uh, They Drive By Night, High Sierra, On Dangerous Ground the Big Knife, among many, many other things, dozens and dozens of acting roles, and was also a beloved and very important director who uh, started her own production company and directed seven feature films, and we're going to get into all that shortly. However, before we get down to it, uh, first of all, I want to say a very, very big thank you, because we have surpassed 100 downloads. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but for a total fucking noob who's learning as he's going, and obviously is not, you know, in any way a public figure... 100 downloads is a big fucking deal to me, and uh, so thank you very much for your support. That is much appreciated, and speaking of which, if you would like to support or continue to support this podcast, please uh, subscribe on the Apple Podcasts, the Spotify, or the Google Podcasts, whatever your preference is. We're available on all three platforms, uh, so you can find us there. Please comment, subscribe, listen, keep supporting, keep listening. And uh, if you would like to contact us or stay in touch, you can follow us on the Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. That's Closed Set Podcast. I put up updates and little teasers for episodes there. You can shoot us a DM through there as well if you'd like. Those are always welcome. And if you would like to reach us by email, uh, you can do that at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That's closedsetpod at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, feedback, criticisms, uh, all that good stuff, feel free if you would like. And also, I forgot to do this in the last couple episodes, I would like to give a very big shout-out to my good friend Laurent Marin, who is a big supporter of this podcast and who wrote and performed uh, our theme music that you heard at the top of the show. Uh, And with that said, let us boogie. Now, Ida Lupino is important for many different reasons, the first being she was the only female director working in Hollywood uh, at that time in the 40s and 50s. I mean, it's no secret that Hollywood and the movie industry is, uh, is a male-dominated field, and um, she was a rarity for her time in that regard. And the not just that, but the, the film she directed touched on a lot of social issues and sensitive topics that were considered very, very taboo for the time. And her films were considered very daring for that reason. She explored a variety of different topics and sensitive subjects, including Unwed Mothers, Polio, which at the time, of course, was a very big deal. Uh, in the late 40s. Her films dealt with rape, bigamy, uh, and a variety of other subjects, and we're going to get into all that in a little bit. However, we of course will start at the beginning. So Ida Lupino was born in February of 1918 in London. She was from the UK, and she was born to a family of performers. Her mom was a woman named Connie O'Shea. She went by the stage name Connie Emerald. She was uh, from the UK, but of Irish extraction. And uh, she was an actress, and she was often billed as the fastest tap dancer alive. And her father... Ida's father, Stanley Lupino, 
was a legendary music hall uh, comic, and he came from actually a long line of performers that went back centuries, over 300 years. They originated in, uh, in Italy, and uh, the Lupinos were basically a long line of singers, actors, dancers, puppeteers, and they were basically, uh, they, they were basically traveling entertainers, and they eventually made their way to, to the UK. And so Stanley Lupino was Ida's father and a very celebrated uh, music hall performer in his day. And Ida's cousin, Lupino Lane, was also a, uh, a celebrated song and dance man. And so uh, when she was a child, Ida and her sister Rita, who was an actress who appeared in uh, a few of Ida's films, the two of them were sent to boarding school because uh, their parents were just so busy performing. They had gone to America. They were touring on Broadway. And so I guess because of their schedule, they, uh, they put the Lupino girls in a boarding school in England. And it was in her youth that Ida started writing plays. However, her dad was very adamant about grooming her into becoming uh, a performer. To the point where at the age of 13, Ida auditioned for uh, RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in the UK. And I believe she lied about her age. And she was accepted. And um, soon after that, she started finding work as an extra as an extra in small parts in films. Uh, until eventually, she met an American filmmaker named Alan Dwan. Alan Dwan was actually auditioning her mother for a part in the film that he was directing. And uh, Ida had sort of tagged along to the audition. Dwan spotted her, took an interest in her, and uh, this led uh, this led to her doing a, a screen test for him. And she was eventually cast in his film uh, Her First Affair, which came out in, I believe, 1934. And so this sort of kicked off Lupino's career as an actress. And uh, eventually, at the age of 15, in the early 30s, she and her mom go to America because Lupino signs a six-month deal with Paramount Pictures. Now, at the time, this is in the early 30s, the this, Hollywood is flourishing under the studio system. And so the infrastructure back then, performers would sign to studios for either X amount of years or X amount of pictures. And you basically had exclusivity to that studio. You worked only for them. Although, in certain cases, studios could sort of loan out their performers to other studios. And it was sort of a quid pro quo, pro quo thing. And so Ida signs with Paramount as a teenager. And oddly enough... I suppose they, they were trying to push her as like another Jean Harlow. They gave her this bleach blonde hair and they, they, they kept casting her in these roles as a sort of vamp or like a seductress of sorts, even though she was basically in her mid-teens at the time, which was a little strange. And the studio system at that time was very prolific. It was very much factory filmmaking. They were churning out films like it was nothing. And so Ida worked a lot in her youth. However, she kept getting cast in these roles as, these, as this sort of young temptress. And she grew more and more frustrated with the kind of parts she was getting. And she ended up clashing with Paramount. They put her on suspension. And eventually she returns at the age of 17. She comes back from her suspension because Paramount, I guess, had, had promised her sort of meatier and more significant parts in, in bigger productions. Of course, they don't keep their word. <laughs> it's, more, it's more of the same. And then in 1937, Ida has arguably, what you can argue was a life-changing uh, encounter with Hedda Hopper, who was a legendary columnist. Uh, in 1937, the two of them meet, and Hopper basically told Ida to ditch the artificial look, forget the bleach blonde hair, and this whole sort of persona that the studio was trying to build her, build around her, uh, and to just let her natural self out. So out with the bleach blonde hair, in with her natural dark hair. At the end, she sees her par her contract with Paramount through, but of course she's fed up with them by this time, so she doesn't re-up with them. And in 1938, she marries her first of three husbands. Uh, an actor named Lewis Hayward. The two of them actually later starred in uh, a film together called uh, Ladies in Retirement. This was in 1941. Uh, but before then, Ida campaigned for a part in a film called The Light That Failed. This came out in 1939. It was directed by William A. Wellman, a very prolific director who directed uh, The Public Enemy with James Cagney in the early, the early 30s, among many other things. And this film starred Ronald Coleman, Oscar winner Ronald Coleman. He hadn't won by this time. But he played a, uh, a painter, an artist, 
who's losing his sight, he's going blind. And Ida Lupino plays a sort of uh, scraggly young woman who poses for Ronald Coleman's character. He decides to paint her, and she ends up becoming the subject of his masterpiece, his magnum opus. My melancholia. Marvelous eyes. Terror in them. Futility. Sorrow. Yes, the eyes have it. Now, keep your chin up. Don't let him hit me, sir. Please don't. Don't be afraid. He's not going to hit you. He's an artist. They're all mad. Do you know what artists do? Well, they... they draw things on the pavement. <laughs> That's right. I haven't risen to that yet, though. I want to draw your head. What for? Because it's pretty. That's why I'm willing to pay you three quid a week just for sitting still and being drawn. Here's a quid on account. For nothing? Aren't you afraid I'll cheat you? I'm sure you will. What's your name? Bessie. Bessie. It's no use giving the rest. Bessie broke. Stonebrook, if you like. What's yours? Oh, you don't need to give the real ones. No one ever does. And it was kind of a breakout performance for Lupino. Uh, it got her rave reviews. It, it was the beginning of, of critics and people in the know starting to sort of take her seriously as an actress. And it was after this that uh, she signed with Warner Brothers. So this led her to a new opportunity there. And in 1940, she ends up starring in a Raoul Walsh-directed film called They Drive By Night. So the film stars Humphrey Bogart, George Raft, and Ida Lupino. So Bogart and Raft play two brothers who are truck drivers, and they end up getting mixed up in this, in this murder mystery, and shenanigans ensue, and you understand. It's a classic, a classic noir film. And Ida Lupino is fantastic in it, as always. She, the critics loved her performance. A lot of them said she stole the film, and I, uh, I'm inclined to agree. And it was, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful performance from her. And it led to her sort of getting cast in a lot of these sort of these femme fatale roles, if you will. He was laughing. Yes, he. He was laughing. Kiss me when he was drunk. Yes, kiss me when he was drunk. So I got a new car. Yes, I got a new car. And I bought some new clothes. Yes, they were pretty. And he, he used to tell terrible jokes. And he'd laugh at them. He was always laughing. And then I saw him lying there, drunk. I heard the motor running. And I saw the doors. I heard the motor. I saw the doors. The doors made me do it. Yes. The doors made me do it. The doors made me do it. <laughs> And so, after the success of They Drive By Night, uh, Raoul Walsh, Humphrey Bogart, and Ida Lupino team up together again the year after for a film called High Sierra. I guess the, uh, the thinking was that uh, lightning would strike twice. So Warner Brothers teams up the three of them again, and they star in a film called High Sierra. This was another crime film. And uh, Humphrey Bogart basically plays an ex-con who is hired by his old boss, 
to orchestrate and carry out a heist of a resort in California. And so Bogart and Ida Lupino are the two leads. Again, another great performance from Ida. And it, this film actually cemented Humphrey Bogart as a leading man, and it paired him up with John Huston. John Huston was a very prolific director who co-wrote the script, although he didn't direct. And the two, and he and Humphrey Bogart went on to collaborate many, many times, most notably in uh, The Maltese Falcon, which also came out in 1941, and uh, The African Queen, which won Humphrey Bogart his Oscar for Best Actor in 1951. But in any case, enough about Humphrey Bogart. So Lupino gets these two big, these two big parts opposite Bogart in 1941. Hey, you feeling better now? Still kind of wobbly. I keep thinking of Babe and Red. Ah, there's no use of worrying about them. If they didn't kick off, the coppers up. Roy, do you think they'll talk? <laughs> if they don't, Mendoza will, but who cares? I'll be turning that box over to Big Mac in a couple of hours, and he's gonna hand me a water dough. Oh, gee. Then we'll be all set, won't we, Roy? Sure. You got quite a piece of change coming to you, too, and I'm gonna see that you get it right away. Because I'll be blowing pretty soon. Going back east, I guess. I'm going with you. I don't talk like a sap. You stick around with me, you'll never be in anything but trouble. Look, Roy, no matter what happens, I'm sticking with you. Don't think you're ever gonna check me so easy. Well, we'll see. Come on, let's go. Come on, pardon. But remember, if the going gets too tough, I'm gonna have to park you for a while. I'm glad you said for a while. That makes me feel good. Look, if I really get in your way, you can park me. Is that a deal? It's a deal. And she's getting great reviews. The critics love her. She's getting paid handsomely by Warner Brothers. However, she isn't really getting pushed by Warner Brothers as a big star. She was kind of... Uh, a lot of people sort of looked at her as a, as a second fiddle to Betty Davis at that time. And so she gets frustrated with the studio yet again. And to make matters worse, Lewis Hayward ends up enlisting in the Marines to go serve in World War II in the early 40s. And so she's left alone, and she's left out of work, and so she ultimately goes back to work for Warner Brothers, despite their their discord, uh, because Warner Brothers had suspended her, just like Paramount had. And it was during her suspension at Warner Brothers that Ida was spending time on film sets, sort of getting acquainted with filmmaking and everything that happens behind the camera. This was basically the beginning of her education as a director. So she spent uh, much of her suspension just sort of watching how the sausage was made. But unfortunately, uh, not only does Lewis Hayward take off, enlist in the Marines, and go serve in the war, shortly after that, Lupino finds out that her father, Stanley, has died of cancer. Uh, Stanley died in June of 1942. At the age of 48, he was a young man, and of course the loss was devastating to Ida. One of many, many tragic losses that she would have to, that she endured over the course of her life. Family members, friends, this was the first of many. And naturally, she's devastated, and Hayward ends up coming back from the war in 1943. But unfortunately, he uh, he comes back a changed man, and not for the better, obviously. War, unfortunately, has that effect on a lot of people. And so Lupino's marriage to Hayward goes south after he comes back from the war. And so not only does she lose her father to cancer, she ends up losing her husband. They end up divorcing in 1945. And so she sinks into a bit of a depression, naturally. However, she finishes out her contract with Warner Brothers, but again frustrated with the studio. She doesn't re-up with them. And so Ida's in a bit of a tough spot because she's been typecast yet again, great as she is, uh, as these hardened women, these femme fatale characters, these vixens of sorts. And so she was left wondering how she was going to find more fulfilling work, and she ends up meeting a young producer named Collier Young. And the two of them actually shared a vision. They wanted to make their own projects, they wanted to find and cast young talent, and basically make movies that, that mattered to them without being beholden to anyone. That's the dream, isn't it? And so <laughs> the two of them meet. They have much in common in terms of aspirations, at least. And they end up getting married in 1948. 
And it's in 1948 that they found their own production company called the Filmmakers, Inc. Filmmakers is spelled with one M for whatever reason. And it was Lupino, Collier Young, and a screenwriter named Melvin Wald, who was actually, who co-wrote uh, the great film, The Naked City, which was directed by Jules Dassin in 1948. I loved that movie. Uh, so the three of them uh, team up. They were the, uh, the Filmmakers, Inc. triumvirate, if you will. And they, for many years, they had a productive and fruitful partnership making films that touched on social issues, were kind of shot documentary style, low-budget films, uh, but very tight, very lean, and sort of just meat-and-potato storytelling that touched upon uh, a lot of themes that uh, the studios wouldn't touch at that time. And the first of which, the first film in the, in the Filmmakers in Catalog, was titled Not Wanted. This came out in 1949. So Sally Forrest plays a young woman who falls for a piano player who's working at, uh, at the bar that she works at. The two of them have a brief fling, she follows him when he leaves for another town, supposedly to pursue a new opportunity. Uh, lo and behold, she's pregnant, and he takes off yet again. He wants nothing to do with her. You never cared anything about me, did you? And all the time I thought it was the most wonderful thing I'd ever known, the way I felt about you. I thought you felt that way, too. And all the time you didn't care. Not even a little bit. I must have seen awfully silly and cheap to you, mustn't I? Shut up. Well, that's the way I feel. Silly and cheap. Shut up! Now you listen to me. All my life I've stuck to one principle, never get involved. And you know why? Because I'm tired, Sally. I'm tired of rooms like this. I'm tired of cheap, out-of-tune pianos. I'm tired of joints. If I'm ever going to get where I'm going, I have to do it alone. You're forgetting something, Sally. We were two people who knew what we were doing, remember? I never gave you any phony ideas about getting married and growing old together. That's something you got into your head. If I've hurt you, Sally, I'm sorry, but I've never lied to you. Now get that straight. And so Sally Forrest's character is left to fend for herself. Meanwhile, in this new town, her piano man skips out on her, but she meets a young man who gives her a job and, of course, is smitten with her and is trying to get closer to her and start and spark up a relationship. Meanwhile, he doesn't know that she's been, she's been impregnated by this, this piano man. And it follows Sally Forrest's character as she sort of... Uh, she's left to sort of fend for herself and figure out how to handle her pregnancy and what to do with her child. And uh, it was a very, very important film for the time because it dealt with unwed mothers which was very taboo for that time and she ends up she ends up going sally force character ends up going to a home for unwed mothers with the intention of you know seeing her pregnancy through having a bit of help at least until the baby is born and then she intends to give it up for adoption it's a decision that she comes to regret and it takes a tremendous toll on her and so that's the gist of not wanted the main cast sally forrest Ida Lupino gave Sally Forrest her start. It's the first of three films they made together, and Sally Forrest is fantastic in this, a really great young actress. Keith Brazell plays the young man who she meets in her new town. He gives her a job at his gas station, at a gas station that he manages, and of course he's quite taken with her. Honey, am I tired. Brother, this is one day I'll really be glad to see over. Here, double day, good for you. No. What I wanted to talk to you about was last Saturday night you gave me the brush. This Saturday night you're not going to get away with it. Wake up and go on and eat. You're getting too thin. Well, how about me going crazy tonight and spending three bucks on you for dinner? Okay. Swell, but don't wear the family jewels. This is strictly delicatessen night. Now go on and eat. Leo Penn 
who was Sean Penn's father and father to the late Chris Penn as well, who played Nice Guy Eddie in Reservoir Dogs. Leo Penn is the piano man in this film, and he's he's really great in this. And Rita Lupino, Ida's sister, shows up in a small part in this as well. Now, like I said before, a very sensitive subject for the time. Lupino and Melvin Wald co-wrote the script with a guy named Paul Jericho. And Ida Lupino directed this film, although she did not get director's credit initially, Elmer Clifton was supposed to uh, to direct the picture. He, unfortunately, suffered a heart attack just a few days into shooting, and because they were working with such a limited budget, they just couldn't afford to hire another director, so Ida was sort of thrust into the director's chair, and she ended up seeing the shoot through. So this was actually the first film that she directed, although she is not credited uh, officially. And the film was shot for over $100,000, but it was very successful, ended up making over a million. And legend has it that Lupino actually dressed Sally Forrest with, with some of her own clothes. I mean, I guess they couldn't afford a costume designer and such. You know, you're working with a limited budget, you gotta do what you gotta do. But yeah, given uh, just how abruptly she was thrust into the director's chair, Lupino really put a great project together, and it's a, it's a wonderful movie and a great performance from Sally Forrest. And uh, another thing... Like I said, it's kind of gritty, shot documentary style, like a lot of the indie films and the French New Wave works of old. And also, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of just long one shot takes. I know I keep ta- I keep talking about this. I think every episode, but I love these long, just sort of one shot, intimate takes with camera movement or without. And there's plenty of these in uh, in this film, which is something else that I love about it. And so, the filmmakers Inc. had a very quick turnaround uh, because they released their second film called Never Fear in 1949. Now, this was actually Lupino's first credited film as a director, uh, and she co-wrote the script with Collier Young. The two of them worked on it together. This film was also known as The Young Lovers, as, a, as an alternative title for it, in case you want to look for it. And these are all, you can find pretty much all these films online. They're pretty accessible, luckily, if you want to take a look, which I encourage you to do. And so Never Fear follows a young couple. They're an up-and-coming dance duo. They're performers, and they're engaged to be married. They're putting a routine together. They have a gig at a club, and they're on their way up, it seems. Things are looking up for them. That's me, honey. Come in. For you, baby. Oh, God. I bought him so help me. Come here. We made it. We made it. Made what? Brett, the booking agent from the Wilshire, he was out front, came back to my room as big as life. And, and we're in the Wilshire for two weeks. Count a baby, two weeks. Tonight we celebrate. Oh. <laughs> Go on now. You've got a date. Wait a minute. Give me something to keep me going. Mmm. Don't overdo it, will you? <laughs> All oh. right. Go on. I've got my own costume to take care of. Okay, honey. Uh, but unfortunately, their aspirations, their dreams are shattered when the lady of the duo, again played by Sally Forrest, she comes down with polio. And so it's obvious that she'll never she'll never dance again. She has to go through rigorous rehab and physical therapy at the Kambat Kaiser Institute, which is a real place in California. And uh, the film was actually shot there, and a lot of the patients at the institute actually made it into the film. And so it follows Sally Forrest's character as she tries to sort of come to terms with the fact that she probably won't ever dance again and also work her way back to recovery. Uh, meanwhile, her fiancé, played by Keith Brazelliot again, is trying to adjust to these unforeseen circumstances and he's... Sally Forrest, his fiancé, pushes him away. She wants to go through this this rehabilitation, this physical therapy, this ordeal that she's going through. She wants to do it by herself, on her own, and so she sort of pushes him away. This is the first time I ever saw that hand come out in you. There's more to living than twirling around a dance floor, you know. We could make a go of it. Sure. We could both try and make a go of it. And pretty soon there wouldn't be anything left for us. Just two people putting up a front. I don't know what's happened to you, but whatever it is, I thought you had more guts. Stop it, guys. Stop it. I don't want you to carry me up and down stairs the rest of your life. I don't want you to turn into a nursemaid because I'm helpless. And I'm glad you came tonight. You've got to look into the future. 
of the film she comes to the realization that she won't be able to come back from this by herself meanwhile Keith Brazell's character is trying to find a way to provide for them he sort of hustles his way into a job selling houses and gradually you watch Sally Forrest's character come to terms with the fact that yes she she's going to need some help to come back from this and help is there help is available she finds a bit of a kindred spirit in Hugh O'Brien's character who plays another patient at the institute and so you watch Sally Forrest's character deal with her self-pity her stubbornness and sort of understand that her recovery is going to take time. She won't be able to do it alone. And eventually she makes her way. She gets, she fights her way back. And it's a long road to recovery. She's left with a lot of work in front of her. But the film ends on a hopeful note. And so this was actually, this was another daring film. One, because this came out in 1949. This was actually at the height of the polio scare in the United States. So this was a, another very, very sensitive topic that, that Lupino dealt with. And she had actually dealt with polio herself when she was a teenager in the 30s. Her bout with polio wasn't that long, thankfully, but it left her with uh, a limited use of, in her right hand, so she was she had to deal with some lingering effects uh, for the rest of her life. Unfortunately, because it was re released at the height of the polio scare, the film didn't really do very well. A lot of people didn't want to touch it, or see it, rather. And uh, that said, the silver lining that came out of this, uh, because this was Lupino's first credited, uh, her first proper director's credit, uh, it got her into the Directors Guild of America. And get a load of this. She was the only woman in the Directors Guild of America at that time and only the second ever member out of over a thousand members in the Directors Guild. The first ever member was Dorothy Arzner. She'd stopped working in the early 40s, if memory serves. And so Lupino was on her own <laughs> in the Directors Guild of America. And this is the film that got her in. And although the film wasn't successful, Never Fear actually got them a distribution deal with RKO Radio Pictures, which had been bought by Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was... Uh, Notorious business magnate. He had worked as a film producer. He was an aviator as well. He was a big shot business mogul and a notorious eccentric, which is a whole other story. But uh, so he had bought RKO Radio Pictures and uh, the Filmmakers Inc., Lupino's production company, ended up signing a three picture deal with Howard Hughes. And so the first film that the Filmmakers Inc. released as part of their new deal with RKO was called Outrage. This came out in 1950. Lupino directed this one yet again. And it was written by her, Wald, and Young. The three of them worked on the script together. And it follows a young woman who's engaged to be married. She's working as a bookkeeper at a factory. And she gets raped one night. And it basically follows her as she struggles to, um, to sort of process the trauma of her attack. And of course the people, the people around her may mean well. Uh, but of course they have a little to no understanding of what she's just been through. And so... She, of course, naturally is left in a, in, a, in a very delicate and fragile place. Anne, I'm asking you to marry me now. Or didn't you hear me? Yes, I heard. Well? No. Anne. Don't talk like that. We're going to be married right away. 
I want you. I want to live with you. I want to have kids with you. We can be happy like other people. We're not like other people. I don't want to get married ever. I don't want you to touch me. Everything's dirty, filthy and dirty. Anne, listen. We can live away from here, somewhere else, if that would help. Sure. You've seen them staring at me, wondering, talking. Yes, we could run, but not far enough. Shut up. And you'd always be thinking about what happened. You'd never forget. Shut up. It leads her to run away from home and flee to another town. And it's in this town that she sort of... I guess she tries to start over and run away from her trauma. And she ends up meeting a local pastor who's a bit of a kindred spirit. He's dealing with some trauma of his own. He's a war veteran. A different kind of trauma, of course. But the two of them bond and they get closer. We all go through dark times. Mine was a year in the hospital after the war. You see, I was in the, the Navy, Navy chaplain, Italy. Wound up with one lung, TB. But the thing that hurt the most was being told I couldn't go back to my church. There was so much I wanted to do. So you came back here? Uh, feeling pretty sorry for myself. You know, I shouldn't be telling you this. Ministers of the church aren't supposed to waver or doubt. But being human, we do. Do you know something else? When I came back to this valley where I'd been so happy as a boy, I found it as lovely as ever. I looked deep down in myself, and then... up at the sky. Suddenly, I found myself. My faith. It was the most wonderful feeling I'd ever known. And she seems to be doing a little better in her new town until she and the pastor go to a local festival. A local man there is hitting on her. She's trying to reject his advances. He's not taking no for an answer. And his persistence sort of triggers her. She gets flashbacks of her, of her rape. She sees a scar on, on, on this man's neck, which is actually the scar of her attacker. But she's, you know, obviously she's triggered. And in response to it, she ends up attacking this man at the festival and gravely hurting him. And the film ends with her understanding that that she can't run away from her trauma. And she ends up going back home, back to her fiancé. And again, much like Never Fear, much like Not Wanted, there is this message of you can't, you can't, you can't deal with these ordeals, you can't deal with this trauma by yourself, but there is, there is always help. And in this case, in, in, in Outrage, she finds that help in psychotherapy as a way of sort of, I don't know, trying to carry on, trying to live again and deal with what she's been through as best she can. And this was interesting. For one thing, there's a, there's a, if you want to talk about Lupino's technical savvy as a, as a filmmaker, it really shows here in the, in the sequence leading up to end of the rape itself. It's about a five, six minute sequence where she's, she's leaving work late at night. She's being, she's, she's being pursued by her attacker and she's running through the grounds of, of the factory where she works and it's dark and there's no dialogue. So Lupino's really playing with the silence, the shadows and the images. There's this, there's this big eerie image of a big sort of clown poster that that uh, that Mala Power's character, the the leading lady, runs past as she's trying to flee her attacker, and she's getting and she's she's trying to she's trying to hail a cab. The cab, of course, ignores her and fucks off. And she's growing more and more desperate and more and more helpless as her attacker is hot on her trail. And it really builds tension, and you know what you can you kind of know what's coming. And it's a really just sort of disturbing sequence that was really cleverly cut together. And uh, another thing about this film, in 1950, of course, this was one of few films in Hollywood to have dealt with the subject of rape at this time. I mean, Johnny Belinda had, had touched on it. That film came out in 1948, so the outrage was a little bit after. The other thing is, too, that under the Hayes Code, 
the word rape could not wasn't could not be said in the film. It would have violated the uh, the censorship criteria of the Motion Pictures Association, and so you never hear the word rape in the film at all. In fact, they basically refer to her rape as a brutal attack. They just couldn't use the word, which in a way it kind of it it ends up kind of working. It, it kind of helps underscore in a way just the fact that. That Mala Power's character can't talk about her rape, just one, because the people around her just don't really understand what it is she's been through, and second, because she's, obviously, she's never been through something like this before, and she is, she's struggling with, with how to process it. And so the fact that she, so the fact that no one in the film can even say the word rape kind of adds to all that sort of discomfort and that, that turmoil, right? That kind of makes matters worse for her, to be honest, but in any case. And so, uh, the main cast of this film, Mala Powers, is the leading lady. She was uh, she was discovered by Lupino. She was in her late teens at the time, and she is fantastic in this, I gotta say. It's a, a really wonderful and vulnerable and honest performance from her, and she and I, Lupino, actually remained friends after this shoot. Todd Andrews plays the pastor that Mala Powers', Powers character meets uh, in her new town, and the two of them bond. Uh, Robert Clark plays the fiancé to Mala Powers' character. He and Lupino would work together again a little later on. And Rita Lupino, uh, Ida's sister, shows up in another small part. And so that's the main cast. Unfortunately, at this time, Lupino's marriage with Collier Young was beginning to fall apart. They uh, they had the business, they had the production company, the Filmmakers, Inc., but the two of them had grown apart. Their marriage was heading south. And at this time, even though they end up divorcing in 1951, the two of them remained friends and business partners. It didn't, it didn't spell the end of the company. And it was as she and Collier Young were on the outs that Ida Lupino met Howard Duff. Howard Duff was a great actor. We talked about him a little bit in our previous episode, the Robert Benton episode, if you want to take a listen. Uh, a great actor who was in Brute Force, The Naked City, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, he was also in Kramer vs. Kramer later on. And he was also the voice of private detective Sam Spade in a very successful radio drama through the late 40s and into 1950, I believe. And so Howard Duff and Ida Lupino met. Uh, they had co-starred in a film called Woman in Hiding. And it was there that their, that their sort of romance began. And... Uh, very, very shortly after Lupino and Young divorced, pretty much as soon as she and, and uh, Collier Young were finished, Lupino married Howard Duff in 1951, and their daughter Bridget was born not long after that. So Howard Duff is her third husband. They had a very, very long and tumultuous marriage. We're going to talk about that a little later. But yet, despite the end of Lupino's marriage to Young, the two of them remained at least friendly, if not good friends. They, they, he was still a sort of confidant to her. And uh, they kept making films together, the next of which was called Hard, Fast, and Beautiful. This came out in 1951. And it, uh, Sally Forrest stars in it yet again, the third film that she and Lupino made together, and another great performance from her. Uh, Sally Forrest plays a young tennis prodigy who is on the way to stardom. She's got a lot of talent and a lot of promise, and it shows her sort of uh, making her way up the ranks and becoming uh, a renowned tennis star as her sort of domineering mother and her coach-slash-handler are sort of trying to control her and groom her into a superstar because they, of course, have their own personal motives. And, of course, it puts a strain on her on her relationship with her fiancé, and it sort of watches these relationships play out. Sally Forrest's character is young, she's malleable, and her mom, of course, is manipulative. She has dreams of stardom and opulence and the good life, as does her her coach and her sort of uh, her handler, if you will, and it sort of follows these two people in her life trying to manipulate her to to get what they want out of them because, of course, they want to reap the rewards. They're calling the shots at the beginning, and you sort of watch Sally Forrest's character grow up and mature and sort of begin to take control of her future, of her life, and sort of start calling her own shots. And unfortunately, 
her, or perhaps fortunately, her relationship with her mother falls apart. She sort of gets in the way of her impending marriage to her fiancé, and she's making decisions behind her back. Oh, what a bright girl I've been. Honeymoon in Europe, you said. Some, some lovely little old church. You knew all the while Gordon would never have me like that. And how right you were. Oh, you were the clever one, Mother dear. But I turned out to be just plain stupid. Beating my brains out on a, on a tennis court while you were playing it dirty for money. I wish I could throw it all right back in your face. How dare you talk to me like that after all I've done for you. My every thought has been for you. And what do I get? Just what you deserve. Uh, and yeah, so it ends with Sally Forrest's character t sort of taking control of her life and making a very important decision for her career just as she has reached stardom. And I don't want to go into the details. I don't want to spoil it for you. Of course, I'd like for you to see the film. So yeah, I suppose it, uh, I suppose it follows in, in a nutshell. It's following Sally Forrest's character as she struggles to be her own person, which is something that a lot of us are familiar with. <laughs> Uh, and so Sally Forrest plays the lead, another great performance from her. Claire Trevor plays her mother. She is incredible in this. I love her. She is domineering and conniving and clever. And uh, Claire Trevor actually won an Oscar a few years prior in 1948. She won Best Supporting Actress for, for uh, Key Largo, another Humphrey Bogart film. And so she is in this as well, another wonderful performance. Carlton G. Young plays Fletcher Locke, uh, Sally Forrest's coach. Uh, Robert Clark comes back again. He plays yet another fiancé, the fiancé to Sally Forrest's character this time. Uh, and Kenneth Patterson plays Sally Forrest's sickly father. And of all these sort of relationships, pretty much all the... The three key relationships in Sally Forrest, to Sally Forrest's character in this film are her mom, her coach, and her fiancé. And each of these three people wants something out of her, yeah? Of course, her mom and her coach both want her to be a superstar because it means sponsorships and endorsements and success and, you know, all that good stuff. And, of course, her fiancé wants her to quit playing tennis altogether and marry him. So all these three people are trying to have a say in Sally Forrest's life and sort of influence the course her life takes. Uh, and the only person in her life who doesn't do that is her father. He is perhaps her most genuine supporter. Even though he is sickly and he can't be a sort of active participant in her life and in her journey, he is probably the, the, the purest supporter of hers in this entire film. He doesn't want anything out of her. He genuinely wants to see her do well. And he is in direct contrast with Sally Forrest's mother. The two of them, even though they're husband and wife, it becomes very clear early on in the film that Sally Forrest's mother wants nothing to do with her father. The two of them are sleeping in separate beds, and it becomes clear that they've been, their marriage has been headed downhill for quite some time. Will, couldn't we look for another house? Maybe something on the Palisades, where Florence could do some entertaining? Mm hmm? You don't care if we rot in a place like this. What's wrong with a place like this? I remember when you thought Raymond Street was the top of the world. What did I know? I was 17 then, and everything looked great. Especially after living in a crowded house on a measly paycheck. Oh, Millie, please. So then I got married. And guess what? Things were exactly the same. Did you have to bring that up again? Oh, you make me sick. We wouldn't even have this if I hadn't been at you and at you. You've never cared about pushing yourself ahead. What's the use? And so her father, despite taking a back seat 
to his daughter's rise to, to fame and stardom and success, he is perhaps the only person in her life that actually has pure intentions for her. And so, uh, this script was actually not written by any of the filmmakers triumvirate. This was actually written by a woman named Martha Wilkerson. And this this was interesting. So this was the the second picture of the three of the three picture deal that the filmmakers Inc had with RKO. And in order to sort of generate some buzz for the film, Howard Hughes arranged these sort of opulent shindigs where a bunch of different stars would 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 come out and they would have like this these junkets of sorts and all these celebrities would come out and support the film and you know publicly endorse it to generate some buzz. And of course Howard Hughes pulls out all the stops, right? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, because of this, uh, the three members of the filmmakers, Ida Lupino, Collier Young, and Malvin Wald, uh, they actually made peanuts on this movie because it turns out that the money spent, Howard Hughes spent on these elaborate and opulent junkets was actually taken out of their end. So they actually ended up making shit money on this film, unfortunately. And it was actually this deal that actually that put a strain on the filmmakers, Inc., the three, the three partners, because they had trusted Collier Young to negotiate it for him. Collier Young was the producer of the, the main producer of the trio. You know, Lupino was an actress and director. Malvin Wald was a screenwriter. They were basically the, the artists of the trio. They trusted Collier Young to negotiate the deal with Howard Hughes. And of course, they ended up getting the short end of it. And so that put a strain on the, on the filmmakers, Inc. as well. Uh, they had many, many creative disagreements as well over the course of their partnership. But uh, in any case, they did not end up making a lot of money on Hard, Fast, and Beautiful, which was actually a choice. That title was actually a choice by Howard Hughes. That was another thing that he wanted. He actually spent very little time at his own studio, but he always wanted a say in the subject matter of the films that he was going to be putting out, and he wanted a say as far as the title was concerned. And according to Ida Lupino's biography, Hard, Fast, and Beautiful was the title that he had come up with, although Lupino apparently was actually a very big fan of the title, and she agreed uh, immediately. And so Hard, Fast, and Beautiful came out in 1951. 1951 was... Uh, a busy year for Ida. She was in a film called On Dangerous Ground. This was her and Robert Ryan were the two leads. This was directed by Nicholas Ray, who uh, later did Rebel Without a Cause, among many other things. And uh, Ida Lupino plays a blind woman whose brother is a suspect in a in a murder that is being investigated by Robert Ryan's character. Robert Ryan plays a sort of brutish detective who gets sent out on this case because he has a violent streak and it's, it's generating a lot of heat in the police department. So as a sort of punishment, he gets sent out to the boonies to investigate this murder. He and uh, Ida Lupino's character meet, and uh, sort of romance and other shenanigans ensue. And it's not a bad film. I mean, I, I love Lupino and Robert Ryan. They're both fantastic actors. It's a decent film, although I'm a little disappointed because they went with the syrupy and sort of happy ending as opposed to the originally planned ending, which would have been Robert Ryan solves the murder, and despite his feelings for Ida Lupino, she can't she can't have a re she refuses to enter a relationship with him. Robert Ryan ends up going back to the city to continue his police work, but he goes back having changed for the better. He's no longer this sort of violent brute who uh, gets results with his fists. Uh, but in any case, it's a decent film. The important thing about it is that uh, Ida Lupino actually stepped in to, to direct for some time. Nicholas Ray fell ill. There are differing accounts as to why he fell ill and why he, he was sort of put out of commission for a little bit. He did have some substance abuse problems over the course of his life. I don't know if those played a role in this. Uh, but Ida Lupino did step in to direct the film for some time although she was not credited as a, as a co-director. But in any case, a very busy year for her, 1951 was. And so, she was married to Howard Duff by this time. And not only was their marriage tumultuous from very, very early on, but things were getting difficult with her production company, The Filmmakers Inc., like I said. They had signed a pretty shitty deal with RKO Pictures, it turned out, and uh, that obviously put a strain on her 
her working relationship with her partners. Howard Duff was a heavy drinker, he was a philanderer, he was a notorious womanizer. And not just that, in the early 50s he ended up getting blacklisted uh, by the House of Un-American Activities Committee because they had been, this was the height of the Red Scare, this was during the Cold War, keep in mind. And so there was a big government crackdown on the entertainment industry and of course everybody and their mother was getting suspected, was being suspected of, you know, having communist ties or communist leanings. And a lot of people got investigated and had to, people who refused to testify were, were ultimately blacklisted. And, and, in, and in any case, Howard Duff himself ended up getting blacklisted as part of this crackdown, this, this ridiculous, this ridiculous sort of crusade from, uh, from the American government. And so he was out of work for the early 50s. So not only did Ida Lupino have her production company to contend with, she actually had to keep working as an actress in part to support her company because a lot of the money she made as an actress would then go back into her production company. And she also had to support herself and Howard Duff because he was out of work at this time in the early 50s and it took him some time before he could get on screen again. So this was a very busy and very stressful time for Ida Lupino in her life. And so... Uh, she wouldn't direct uh, her next film until 1953. This was actually another prolific year for her. She, uh, she and the filmmakers Inc. released two films in 53. The first of which was called *The Hitchhiker*, and this was this is probably her most celebrated. This this was this is a sp suspense thriller. It's a film noir, written by Lupino herself and Collier Young, and it's about a hitchhiker, of course, surprise, uh, who's been going on a bit of a, a killing spree. He's been on a bit of a rampage. He hitches rides with people robs them, kills them, and then moves on to the next. And so after he's uh, he's accrued a couple of victims, this hitchhiker, played by William Tallman, ends up hitching a ride with two friends, played by M Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy, who are, who are supposed to be headed on a fishing trip. And of course he holds them hostage and has him drive them to a small Mexican town where he intends to, to catch a ferry and sort of flee, to, and flee the authorities as, of course, the authorities are on their trail and sort of closing in on them gradually. And so it follows, it basically builds tension for like an hour and 20 minutes. And it's nice because you have this, you have the, a lot of the film, of course, takes place with the three of these guys in the car. So you have the claustrophobia of the car. Meanwhile, they're driving through this vast sort of arid Mexican desert. So you have the claustrophobia of the car, and then you look at this massive sort of desert barren wasteland. And it sort of, just sort of enhances just how, how helpless the, t the, the, two, uh, the two friends are at the point of this hitchhiker's gun. Here we are! Here we are! Can't you see us? Look, here we are! Down here! Oh, please, God! Hear me! Hear me! Come back! Come back! <laughs> It's, uh, there are three great performances. Like I said, uh, Lupino does a great job of building tension and sort of alternating between the car and the sort of the claustrophobia of the car and the wasteland. And William Tallman is fucking fantastic as the hitchhiker. He has he's got a bum eye. He's pure evil, and he knows that he uh, that all he needs is his gun to get whatever it is that he wants. He knows that the gun is the source of his power, and yet he, you see him. He repeatedly taunts them over the course of their ride, and he's putting them down. You guys are soft. You know what makes you that way? You're up to your necks in IOUs. You suckers. You're scared to get out on your own. You always had it good, so you're soft. Well, not me. 
Nobody ever gave me anything. So I don't owe nobody. My folks were tough. When I was born, they took one look at this puss of mine and told me to get lost. I didn't need them. I didn't need any of them. Got what I wanted my own way. And you get the know-how and a few bucks in your pocket. You can buy anything or anybody. Especially if you got them at the point of a gun. That really scares them. You ever been at the other end of a gun? No. And I never will be. But he's a clever fucker. They eventually get him to Mexico. Uh, but of course, the authorities begin closing in. They're piecing things together little by little. And then, of course, there's a showdown at the end, which I won't go into because I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, but yeah, this was actually based on a true story. So Edmund O'Brien, Frank Lovejoy, and William Tallman are the three main actors. And this was based on a true story. So there was a spree killer in the early, early 50s uh, named Billy Cook. And he killed six people over a 22-day span in the early 50s. He, and he, uh, he had actually also taken... He had taken two hunters hostage also. This was a separate incident. And it was his taking hostage of the two hunters that was actually the basis of the film. And he was ultimately convicted and executed not long after. Uh, and Ida Lupino, according to her biography, had actually met one of the hunters that Billy Cook had taken hostage. It was a chance encounter. And the, their story ended up becoming the basis of The Hitchhiker. And she had actually gotten permission, not just from the two hunters, but she had also gotten permission from Billy Cook himself to make a movie out of their story before Cook was executed. And so that's how the film was born. And this was another important distinction for Ida because this made her the first woman to have directed a film noir in Hollywood. And this was the last film that the Filmmakers Inc. ended up putting out with RKO. Unfortunately, in a way it was a relief because they, they sort of worked out... They ended up honoring their contract with RKO and that was the end of it. They were basically free of, of Howard Hughes's uh, clutches at the end of this. However, some problems did ensue. This was the, They weren't in the clear after their deal with RKO was seen through, unfortunately. That said, Ida did go on to direct another great film in 1953. This was called The Bigamist. So she and Edmund O'Brien reunite. Uh, and Joan Fontaine is in this as well. So is Edmund Gwynn. And it basically follows a lonely salesman, played by Edmund O'Brien, who is married to Joan Fontaine's character. And on his regular travels to Los Angeles, he meets Ida Lupino's character and strikes up a romance with her. And it sort of follows him as he leads a double life and tries to walk this tightrope of juggling two wives. His original wife, Joan Fontaine's character, is very career-driven. The two of them can't have kids. And she initially isn't receptive to the idea of adoption and sort of fill that sort of... to fill the void, if you will, for lack of a better term. She actually throws herself into their business. And she ends up taking the reins on, on, on their business and, and growing it and taking meetings with clients and sort of running the show. Meanwhile, Edmund O'Brien is tired of traveling back and forth between San Francisco and L.A. His, he doesn't really get any pleasure or any excitement out of his work. He and his wife are growing apart because of her dedication to their business and his growing disinterest. And it's on a trip to Los Angeles that he meets Ida Lupino, who's working at a, as a waitress at a Chinese restaurant. And the two of them strike up a romance. And the two of them actually end up getting married. Ida Lupino's character doesn't want to ask any questions. She doesn't want to know anything about his, his life before he met her. And so she's unaware of his first wife. And although Edmund O'Brien and Joan Fontaine can't have a child, he and Ida Lupino do. So he fathers a child with her. And it is around this time that Joan Fontaine's character actually comes around to the idea of them adopting a child. I've been thinking about something. What was that? About your being here with me all the time. I didn't realize home meant that much to you. I've been so wrapped up in the business that 
I thought you liked things the way they are, traveling around and meeting people. I did, but I've had it. Now I want to stay put. And I was wrong about something else, too. Wrong? For nearly four years, ever since the doctor said, no, baby, I hated myself and you and everybody. I was resentful when you suggested adopting one. I couldn't see taking care of somebody else's child. Remember that? Yes, I remember. I was wrong. What made you think of it now, after so much time? Maybe it was the telegram from home. I suddenly thought of how much my family meant to me and how much they loved me. And it seemed selfish not to pass it along to a little child that needed it. Even if it isn't your own? It doesn't seem to make any difference. Do you still want one? Yes, of course I do. Well, then, would you see maybe about getting one while I'm away? Yes, I will, Eve. Tomorrow morning, the very first thing. I thought you'd forgotten all about it, that the business was our baby. Will you forgive me for taking so long? Yes, I forgive And eventually, Edmund O'Brien's character is found out. And interestingly enough, of course, bigamy is illegal. And so he ends up in court. And spoiler alert, the judge ultimately leaves it up to the two wives to decide what to make of him as punishment. Because it's an interesting film because oh, Edmund O'Brien's character, although he has basically betrayed these two women, Ida Lupino doesn't paint him as a monster in this film. He... he, he <laughs> She kind of paints him as more of a fool than anything else, which he is. And it's his weird, sort of strange sense of morality that he uses to sort of rationalize his carrying on this charade. And ultimately, they end up, he gets his day in court, and the judge ends up leaving it up to the women because, of course, they're the most affected by this. The two of them have been betrayed. And the judge rules that this guy is a demonster. He is, all things considered, a somewhat decent man, which is why he leaves it to the two women to decide his penance. And Lupino leaves it up to the, the viewer to decide what, uh, what Edmund O'Brien's character's fate is. And it is only at the end of the film that the two wives actually come face to face and lock eyes. And it's interesting, especially knowing that Collier Young, by this time, of course, he and Lupino had been divorced, and his next wife was Joan Fontaine. <laughs> so, although the Joan Fontaine and Lupino had, by all accounts, had at least a, a, a respectful working relationship, they were cordial, if not friends. But it's funny, that the, the, the two women who were married to, were married to the same man on film and married to the same man in real life as well. And so Ida Lupino gained yet another distinction with this film. She was the first woman to direct herself in a film. But unfortunately, the film was not very well received, and unfortunately, not very many people went to see it. Again, this was another sensitive subject that the filmmakers Inc. had covered, and so a lot of people just didn't want to touch it. And having seen their deal through at RKO, they weren't working with Howard Hughes anymore, and, of course, the Filmmakers, Inc., the three of them had admitted that they, of course, knew very little to nothing about distribution. And so they, they, they had trouble just getting the film out there for people to see it, period. So it turned out to be a flop, unfortunately. However, uh, over time, the public perception of it is much, much better than it, than it was at the time. And uh, it's often regarded as one of Lupino's best films, and I, I agree completely. And it's a wonderful performance from her. I love watching her on screen. You can't take your eyes off her. One, for one thing, in a purely in a purely superficial sense, she was a beautiful woman. I thought, um, although she was very self conscious about her looks, I've read in her biography. But you see her, and she's she shows you so many different colors. But there's nothing over the top or melodramatic about her. I mean, she's sassy. She's guarded yet vulnerable as well. She has this, you know, she she puts on a bit of a sort of tough and brave and independent exterior, but there is a warmth underneath it. And yeah, she she gives you so many different looks, and and uh, it's it's wonderful to watch. But it wasn't the star. You know, you're a funny one. Don't you want to know if there's someone in my life, whether I'm married, divorced, whether I have six children, whether I've spent any time in jail, 
know. Why not? What good would it do me if I didn't know all those things? I like you as you are. The way we are. I don't want anything from you. I'm afraid of being in love again. Uh, but unfortunately, not many, not many people went to see it when it came out. And um, it was not long after this that the Filmmakers Inc. ended up putting up their final film. It wasn't a good one, unfortunately. So the last film that the Filmmakers Inc. put out was called Private Hell 36. This came out in 1954. And it's a crime film that Lupino stars in with Steve Cochran and her husband, Howard Duff. Uh, and apparently, according to her biography, I read that she was actually reluctant to, to direct Howard Duff. Uh, I guess she was... She had reservations about how he would feel taking direction from her. Or maybe she thought it would put a strain on their on their relationship. Who the fuck knows? But uh, but in any case, they started it together, and they ended up hiring Don Siegel to direct it. Uh, but unfortunately, it was a messy shoot. Apparently, Steve Cochran was a very heavy drinker by that time, which made things difficult. <laughs> and um, and the film ultimately shit the bed. It was badly reviewed. It was a total dud. And unfortunately, it was the, the last film that the Filmmakers Inc. ever put out. The production company went bust soon after. Uh, I believe that Lupino had intended to make another film with Keith Brazell after this. And it may have actually gotten made, but it never saw the light of day. In any case, whether it got made or not, the um, unfortunately, the Filmmakers Inc., without backing, without distribution, they just they ran out of money. And the company had to fold in the mid-50s, and that, uh, that marked the end of uh, Lupino's stint as an, as an independent film director, unfortunately. Uh, that said, after this, by the mid-50s, television was all the rage. And so Lupino had actually... And so Lupino ended up dedicating herself to working in television. That became the bulk of her... That became her, her medium of choice for most of the remainder of her career. She was in a couple of films in the mid-50s. She was in uh, The Big Knife, which was an adaptation of the Clifford Odets play. And anyhow, what is always this, this arty buck? You know that this this industry is capable of turning out good pictures, pictures with guts and meaning. Sure, sure, and we know some of the men who do it. Stevens, Mankiewicz, Kazan, Houston, Wyler, Wilders, Stanley Kramer, but never Stanley Hoff, never. Not once, not for the life of him, not for all the pompous press statements. Stanley Hoff will personally produce War and Peace by Tolstoy. Yeah, sure, that'll be the day. <laughs> Starring Charlie Castle with a bullwhip in one hand. And a bleached blonde in the other. Uh, and this was directed by Robert Aldrich, who had done The Dirty Dozen and Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, great director. And she was in this with him and Jack Palance. That came out in 1955. And she was also in uh, the Fritz Lang film uh, While the City Sleeps. So she did get some film work in the mid-50s. However... Uh, that began a long layoff away from the big screen for her, and she had dedicated her efforts from then on to acting and directing uh, in television. And she was in a great show called Four Star Playhouse. It was her, David Niven, Dick Powell, and Charles Boyer, a fantastic cast. Uh, and she did a lot of work on that show. And she and Howard Duff ended up uh, getting their own show on TV called Mr. Adams and Eve, which was sort of loosely based on their life as husband and wife. Ida Lupino ended up getting nominated for Emmys, both for Four Star Playhouse and for Mr. Adams and Eve. And so she kept working on TV. She was very much in demand as an actress and as a director on TV. And she didn't go back to the big screen until 1972 uh, in a film called Junior Bonner, which was directed by Sam, Pe uh, Sam Peckinpah and was with, uh, starred Steve McQueen. Wasn't very well received, but the critics did have a lot of good things to say about perform her performance. I mean, she was, she's the best thing in it, which is not surprising. And uh, yet again, as far as her work on television is concerned, Lupino was another, another trailblazer. She was probably the only woman working as a director in, 
on TV at that time. She ended up directing episodes of The Donna Reed Show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Untouchables, Dr. Kildare, Bewitched, pretty much every major television series that was on air uh, through the 50s and 60s. Ida directed at least one episode of it. And perhaps most importantly, she got to work on The Twilight Zone. So she had starred in one of the first Twilight Zone episodes in 1959 called The 16mm Shrine, which was with her, Martin Balsam, a great character actor, and Ted DeCorsia, another good character actor. So she had been in that as an actress, and then in 1964, five years later, she directed an episode called The Masks. It's a great one, and it's with Robert Keith, and it basically follows a man who is on his deathbed, an old man who's on his deathbed. It's the night of Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and his, his family, his daughter, his son-in-law, and their two kids, who are awful people, they show up to his house. He's on his deathbed, knowing he doesn't have long to live, and they're basically there to watch him croak, and knowing that they're going to inherit his fortune and everything he owns. Mr. Jason Foster, a tired ancient who on this particular Mardi Gras evening will leave the earth. But before departing, he has some things to do, some services to perform, some debts to pay, and some justice to mete out. This is New Orleans Mardi Gras time. It is also the Twilight Zone. But before he goes, Robert Keith's character has them put on these masks, these old sort of folklorish masks which end up being a reflection of what they are inside. And he gets them to wear them until the stroke of midnight because he holds their inheritance over their heads. So he basically tells them, if you wear these masks, you will then inherit everything I own. But you have to wear them until midnight. And so they make it to midnight. <laughs> they take the masks off. And it is revealed that his family has taken on the face of the masks that they've worn so that everyone can now see what they're really like inside and what kind of people they are what lecherous, vulturous people they are. And it's very, like like most Twilight Zone episodes, it's very eerie and sort of macabre, but it's a wonderful, wonderful episode, and Lupino directed it. And so, another important distinction that she accrued, she was the only woman to direct an episode of The Twilight Zone. So out of over 150 episodes, she was the only one to have directed one, and she is the only person to have both acted in an episode and directed an episode of The Twilight Zone. And if you don't know what The Twilight Zone is, shame on you. But in any case, unfortunately... Uh, with all the work that she was getting in television, one, her marriage was hitting the rocks. Like I said before, Howard Duff was a heavy drinker, he was a philanderer. Lupino liked the booze herself, unfortunately, and the two of them were constantly arguing. He was coming and going, they'd get into these, they'd get into these big fights, he'd take off for some time and then come back and then the whole thing would start over again. Uh, but unfortunately, in 1959, Lupino suffered another great loss. Her mother died. She had been in a car accident and ended up dying of her injuries. Uh, and it was another devastating loss for her because she, uh, Lupino and her mother were, were very, very close. They were, they were basically best friends. And so after that, she kept working in television, soldiering on. And ultimately, she ended up directing her last film in 1966. This film was called The Trouble with Angels. And it follows Haley Mills and June Harding as two teenage girls who join a Catholic convent school. And, you know, they're teenagers, they're a little rebellious, they're getting involved in various shenanigans, and it shows them and, you know, the hilarities that ensue between the students and the nuns and the mother superior who is played by the great Rosalind Russell. And it's a sort of lighthearted comedy, coming-of-age type situation. And it's a good movie. It got a decent reception when it came out. Ellie Mills and, and June Harding are a great duo. June Harding is actually, <laughs> she didn't do a ton of screen work, but she has, she has really great comedic chops in this. She's actually really funny. Unfortunately, uh, she was actually in her late 20s when this film was made, and it shows on screen. It's actually kind of difficult to, to buy her as a teenager and suspend your disbelief. 
but a good performance from her nonetheless. Uh, the ending is a little syrupy for my taste. However, I will say that Rosalind Russell alone is worth the price of admission. She was a she was a fantastic performer, and it's a great turn for her because like you watch the film she was in in the '30s, like uh, for instance, The Women, the the George Cukor film, and she's got that sort of snappy, sort of fast paced delivery that you had seen a lot of the old screwball comedies. And you see her here later in life in the mid '60s. She's this, she's this sort of charismatic and commanding presence, and it's a, a totally different turn from her. And she fucking kills it. And she's got that great sort of stentorian voice of hers, you know, that sort of commands attention. I'm delighted so many of you joined the band this term, even those of you who unfortunately lack musical gifts. She means us. The rest of the band's not so hot either. As you know, we are desperately in need of a boiler. Now, should our band win the prize, the money will be used as a down payment on a remarkable boiler I have just seen in a supply catalogue. Now, I've heard rumors that we are going to have stiff competition especially from New Trends Progressive School, which is not surprising, considering the little time they devote to academic subjects and social graces. Boy, she's got a memory like an elephant. I know you're all going to work very hard to prove that it is possible to be strong spiritually, scholastically, and still have a good band. Good morning, girls. Good morning, everybody. Carry on, sister. And she, she's really wonderful in this. Five-time Oscar nominee, by the way. But So yeah, this was a good movie. It was the last film that, that Lupino directed, but it was, very, it was basically a director-for-hire job. Columbia Pictures put the movie out, and they brought her in to direct, basically. So much like her work on television, she was basically just, you know, a freelancer director-for-hire. She came in to direct this. And it's a, it's a good effort from her. A pretty big departure from the films she was making on her own in the late 40s and early 50s, but a good one from her nonetheless. And also, fun fact, uh, Greta Garbo... Uh, reportedly turned down a one million dollar offer to star in this. She was she was the first choice to play the Mother Superior, and she turned down the part. And uh, Rosalind Russell ended up taking the part, and thank God she did it. She's she really is great in this. Her, she her performance alone is worth the price of admission, honestly. But not much else to say about the trouble with angels. And so after that, the film came out in 1966, and uh, Lupino goes right back to working in TV. She worked as an actress through the 60s and 70s. She was on. A bunch of legendary series. She and Howard Duff actually appeared on the Batman series together, the original series with, with Adam West. And she was in Columbo as well with the great Peter Falk, one of my favorites. We talked about him a little bit on our John Cassavetes episode if you'd like to have a look-see. Uh, Lupino was also in Charlie's Angels and a bunch of other series. Uh, however, uh, her marriage to Howard Duff is a shit show, basically. Howard Duff, I think, was jealous of her, first of all. Even though, after he was blacklisted, I mean, he has Lu Lupino to thank for, for, for going back to work. She was a much bigger name than he was. She hadn't been blacklisted, and she basically did everything she could. She was loyal to him. She did everything she could to sort of get him back to work again. So he owed a lot of, a lot of the jobs he got to her. And they worked together several times, although Howard Duff didn't like living in her shadow. He didn't like taking direction from her. And so between his drinking, his philandering, their fights, him sort of coming and going as he pleased, Lupino ended up descending into alcohol addiction herself, and she started drinking very heavily. She started, she got addicted to pills. And ultimately, Howard Duff ended up leaving her for good in 1972. He ended up leaving her for a much younger woman. And um, Lupino ended up, she basically continued her downward spiral. The substance, she was hitting the booze heavy. And so unfortunately, later on in her life, later on in her career, she was sort of getting sporadic sporadic work on screen. 
but she had a hard time remembering her lines. Her addictions were getting the best of her. They were taking their toll on her, and not just that, the personal losses continued. Her One by one, her friends were, were getting old and passing on. You know, such is life. But again, she she kept losing the people, who, the, the people who were dear to her in her life. She became a recluse. She rarely ever left her house in California. She let it fall into shambles. And in the mid-80s, she, had, she ended up getting hospitalized. She had had a series of mild strokes. And in the 90s, she was diagnosed with cancer. And ultimately, she died on August 3rd, 1995, at the age of 77. And um, it was a very, very tragic end to her career. And her life, unfortunately, took a very sad turn. Like I said, she... Um, and again, this was this is a, this is this is a recurring theme that we that we've seen on this show so far. A lot of these filmmakers don't go gently into that good night, whether just in life or in their careers. That said, if I may offer something up in summation, just of her career, just to sort of highlight the importance of her as a filmmaker in American cinema. John Cassavetes is often heralded as this sort of pioneer of indie filmmaking in America, right? However. One thing, perhaps the most important thing, if there's anything I can offer up through all of this when looking at Lupino's work and her life, Lupino did it first. She set the blueprint. I mean, if you think about it, she started her own production company in the late 40s. She financed her her own films from the money that she got in her acting work, and that's exactly what John Cassavetes did years later. He was a journeyman actor. He basically took a bunch of acting roles, some better than others, and he would use the money from his his from his acting work to make the films that he wanted to make. And Lupino did it first in the late 40s and early 50s. I mean, in the, in the early 50s, just to put it into perspective, I think John Cassavetes was still at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, so she certainly beat him to it. And this is not to shit on Cassavetes. I adore him. He's one of my favorites, but gotta give credit where credit is due. Lupino set the blueprint. She did it first. Uh, and yeah, she basically set the template that a lot of indie filmmakers followed after that. Unfortunately, when they signed the deal with RKO, she didn't have the complete creative control that she would have liked, because... Like I said before, Howard Hughes always wanted final say on the kind of subject matter that they would that they would explore. He ended up poo-pooing a lot of sort of a lot of projects that Lupino had intended to make, and he also wanted a, a say on the on the titles of uh, of the films that his studio put out as well. So they didn't have complete autonomy, unfortunately, under RKO. But that said, she's still she's very much a pioneer of independent cinema in America, and I love I loved reading about the kind of director she was, just just about the way she worked. Like I said before, her films touched on a lot of important social issues for their time. Some of them don't hold up because, like I said, for example, Never Fear, which came out in 1949, released at the height of the polio scare. Polio isn't, you know, the destroyer that it, that it was back then. So unfortunately, the maybe the impact of Never Fear isn't quite as... It'll probably be lost on, on today's viewers. But nonetheless, she dealt with a lot of sensitive topics during her time as an indie filmmaker, a lot of which is relevant today, whether you look at Not Wanted... Outrage, with, which deals with rape and the sort of, and the aftermath thereof, and dealing with the trauma that comes with it, unfortunately. The Bigamist, The Hitchhiker is still a great noir thriller. So a lot of her films still hold up. Some of them don't, unfortunately, so they can't, they don't really get that sort of, that classic status, if you will. They're not exactly timeless. That said, Lupino did some fantastic work as an independent filmmaker. And Lupino, like I said, a very, very prolific television director. Again, probably the only female director working in television for her time. Uh, and over the course of her career, she directed over 100 episodes of TV. She was a workhorse. Savage. And just, <laughs> it was funny reading about how, reading about her, her process. She she always worked with very limited budgets. And being conscious of that, she meticulously planned every shot, knowing that she just couldn't throw money at everything. She didn't have the time or the or the money to just sort of fuck around. She had to be very, very meticulous in how she planned her shoots. Always came in under budget always had very, very tight shoots, 
a lot of her films were shot in no more than a couple weeks. And I loved <laughs> just her demeanor on set. If you watch old, if you watch old footage or old, uh, some old interviews of Lupino, there aren't many out there, unfortunately. But she was, she really was a force of nature, and she had a reputation for it. She, she, she couldn't sit still, and she liked to be very hands-on on set. She liked to be in the thick of the action. And as opposed to just some directors who just sort of like to sort of you know sit back and watch everything from afar and be a sort of puppet master, she liked to be in, she liked to be in the shit for lack of a better term, and she had a reputation for being kind of motherly to her crew and the people she worked with. Uh, and the back of her director's chair actually didn't write director; it wrote mother or mother to us all, according to some accounts. And she took a very motherly relationship to the people she worked with, and you know she called everybody darling in in her her lovely way. She actually sounds like a, a joy to work for, to be honest. <laughs> um, and she was actually, to add a bit of an aside, if you will, she was a, a bit of a mother and a companion to very many of her friends, to a lot of the people that, that she lost too soon. I mean, she was, she was a good friend of John Garfield's, and John Garfield had been blacklisted himself, much like Howard Duff. And so his, he, was, he was having problems with his career, of course, and he had his health was failing uh, when he was still in his 30s. And Lupino was a, was, a, was a great friend to him and a companion to him towards the end of his life, and she tried very hard to, to get him back on screen again. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 39. She was a good friend to Robert Walker as well, who was in the Alfred Hitchcock film Strangers on a Train. Robert Walker had been married to Jennifer Jones, wasn't able to see his kids after his divorce, was the self-proclaimed loneliest man in Hollywood, or the loneliest man in show business. And the two of them had a bit of a, an, a I don't want to say an affair, but they had a, a brief, short-lived relationship, if you will. And Dick Powell, who was another friend of hers, and the two of them worked together on the Four Star Playhouse, his marriage had fallen apart. He was in, in the middle of a messy divorce. He was losing his battle to cancer. And he basically asked Lupino if she could be his companion until he died, and she agreed. And uh, the two of them spent a lot of time together towards the end of his life. So she was very much kind of motherly and, a, and, and sounds like a loyal and wonderful companion to these people. And not just that, as a filmmaker, she gave a lot of people their starts. Sally Forrest, Keith Brazell, Mala Powers... A guy named John Franco, who went on to become a very sort of in-demand and celebrated script supervisor in Hollywood. And like I said, and she, she gained a lot of important distinctions. Just the second woman to join the Directors Guild of America. The, the, the only active member at, at, that, at that time, in the late 40s. And a lot of the sort of, a lot of the feminists of the 70s that came later kind of criticized her work. They, a lot of them like to say that the women in her films are just sort of these helpless victims. But I don't know, I think they were just women, women of that time. And Lupino was just showing how, you know, how they were sort of subjugated or what they were up against, really. And and a lot of her films end on a positive note, especially the early ones. I mean, Not Wanted, Never Fear, and Outrage. I mean, these these women go through hell, quite honestly. But there is a message of hope, and she is, she's showing what they're up against, all while saying that, yeah, oftentimes you can't, you can't get through these ordeals by yourself, but there is help. I don't know. I think the criticism from the 70s feminists is a little harsh on her. Uh, and also... Lupina herself didn't identify as 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 a feminist or an activist of any kind. I mean, she was I guess I guess she was just depicting what what the women of her time were up against and that's and that's it. She was just she was just touching on these these sensitive subjects as truthfully as she could ultimately. And again, a lot of filmmakers that came after her sort of did much of the same, shot in documentary style, touched on very delicate subjects. I mean, John Cassavetes did it later with Shadows, which covers an interracial relationship. Sam Fuller touched on a lot of sensitive subjects in the early 60s, such as, you know, child molestation, prostitution. Shock Corridor takes place in a, in a mental asylum. And he was a former newspaper man, so his, his films have this sort of pulpy quality to them that, that you don't really see in Lupino's. But still, a, there's a parallel there nonetheless, but I digress. In any case, 
I know I'm babbling, but Lupino did really set the blueprint for, for a lot of these guys. And she gave a lot of people their start. And did a lot of good for a lot of people, both both as a filmmaker and as a friend. And so that's all I got for a great idol Lupino. Again, just a wonderful talent. An incredible actress. I know we spoke... I talked about her mostly as a director, just because that's 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 what the show is about. It's dedicated to, to directors. But I encourage you to watch the film she acted in. Uh, the Light That Failed, High Sierra, They Drive By Night, On Dangerous Ground, The Big Knife. She is quite often the best thing about the movies that she is in. Just an incredible actress and a wonderful director. And you can find pretty much all, all the films... All the films she directed and starred in, you can find them all pretty easily online. Luckily, they've they've lived on, even though there's, there isn't much record of her past interviews, unfortunately. Uh, but one of my favorites. And with that said, that about does it for this episode. Uh, and before I leave you, I want to remind you, thank, uh, first of all, thank you again for downloading and listening. We've passed 100 downloads, as I said, which to me is a very big deal, so thank you very much. Uh, and again, I want to remind you, listen, subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just look up Close Set with T. Alexis, and you'll find us. Please subscribe, leave comments, do all that good stuff. Uh, follow us on the Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. That is the handle. And you can contact us or email us at ClosedSetPod at gmail.com. That's ClosedSetPod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, constructive criticism, whatever you got, I would like to hear it. And with that said... Until next time, bye-bye. Danny isn't like other people. Sometimes he's all right, and then other times he's... He came back tonight. He'd been away for two days. Never stayed away that long. He was scared, but I knew something terrible had happened. I want to do what's best for him. Anything I can to help him. He's my brother, but I don't want Brent and the others hunting him down like some animal. You'll see that they take care of him, won't you? You will, won't you? Please promise me. Well, why don't you promise? What are you waiting for? As long as he's with me, nobody will hurt him. That's all I can promise. It's like you say, they'll send him to an institution. Oh, yes. They will now, when it's too late. <laughs>